Should professionals like you and I read more fiction? And if so, why? It is about thinking slower. It's about thinking more critically. And it re- you, you can't get away. You can't speed up reading a novel. That's Dr. Christine Seifert, who in 2020 authored The Case for Reading Fiction in an HBR article. Dr. Seifert, who goes by Christie, is an author herself, a voracious reader, and a professor at Westminster College in Salt Lake City. In this fascinating conversation, we'll hear about terms like cognitive agility, cognitive acuity, design fiction, and other big ideas revealing the power of fiction. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf, the case for reading fiction with Dr. Christy Seifert. That's coming up next. I want to give a plug and a shout out to Westminster College, a liberal arts school in Salt Lake City. That's where our guest is a professor. And I bet Christy is highly regarded there on campus with the kids, uh, peer faculty members, and the administration. So again, a shout out to you guys at Westminster College. Thank you for all you guys are doing. So my first question for Dr. Seifert, and here on out, it'll be Christy. How cool is it to be published in HBR? That's got to be awesome. Honestly, I think it's pretty cool, too. <laughs> um, first, I, just thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here and to talk to you. And I think your podcast is really cool. Um, yeah, writing for HBR was uh, pretty, pretty exciting. And it sort of happened... Um, I was surprised that it happened. I, you know, I had an idea. I've always been a reader of Harvard Business Review. I love the stuff that they put out. So I sent a cold pitch um, and was really excited that they got back to me fairly quickly to say, yeah, we'd, we'd love to talk about this. And so I think that speaks to the subject matter and how interested people are in talking about reading and the business world. Now, your article is, is entitled The Case for Reading Fiction, a published right around COVID, uh, March 2020. So how long did it take before the pitch, getting it written, edited, and then being published? Um, You know, it, it wasn't very long. I mean, I think I pitched it probably sometime in the fall of, of 2019. Um, I sort of had the article sketched out, wrote it fairly quickly, um, went through editing. There was a short break over the holidays, and then it came out, actually, like you said, just before COVID. Um, so it, it was, but I mean, it's definitely been something I've been thinking about and researching and um, sort of noodling over for for a long time before that. Business education. And by the way, we're going to jump into your, we're going to start unpacking your article in a minute, but the, one of the missing links, now this is opinion, business education, and I'm having a hard time not asking you a yes, no question. So I'm going to, I'm going to let you do my work by adding to the yes, no, but would you say there is a missing link in business education in not including maybe works of fiction or uh, classic literature? Well, I'll give you the yes, no answer, and then I'll, I can go on. Yes. I think that is absolutely missing from business education. Um, I, th- I think there certainly are uh, MBA um, educators who are are thinking in this direction. And I, we certainly know that 
there's at least one person at Harvard who, who is, who's doing this. And I, I'm sure there are others, but it's not something that people in the MBA world talk about a lot. But I think that the research is pretty clear that the kinds of skills that we want people to have in the business world are the kinds of skills that you get from reading. So to me, it seems obvious that reading and learning how to read carefully and learning how to think about narrative is an important part of being a well-rounded critical thinker. Um, and I think medical schools sort of hit on it before business schools did because it is fairly common in medical schools for people to read fiction or to discuss fiction as part of learning how to um, interact with patients. Um, and I think that that speaks to the fact that people do know that reading is something that is important and can help us develop skills. The issue is just learning how to do it and do it well so that you actually are um, helping people develop the skills that you want them to, to develop. I did not, I did not know that. Would we, would we be having this conversation say 50, 75 years ago? You know, I, I think no. And the reason that I say that is when you look at uh, some of the research that has come out on the neuroscience side, and, and I, I want to be clear, I am not a neuroscientist, but if you look at the research that has come out, this is fairly new that we have been able to actually see how the brain works when we read fiction. And I think, you know, 75 years ago, we, we didn't have that knowledge, but now we can actually see, oh yeah, reading is doing something to our brains that is positive. And I think the other thing that we have to think about is in this world of fast information, social media, the way that we all read and scroll, we have actually changed our brains. We have changed how our brains uh, look at information and we're not very good at sustained reading. And the way to get better at that is to read more fiction because you have to sustain your attention. You can't just jump through a book, um, not, a, not a difficult book. You can't just read like one chapter and then skip several pages forward. And if you think about it, that's what we do with social media or even the articles we read online. It's skimming. It's not sustained reading. You are already answering really my first and primary question, the case for reading fiction. Again, that's the name of the HBR article came out March, 2020. I do, in my day job, I work with a lot of chief executive officers. I mean, they are my paying uh, client, my paying customer. And some of them have never read a book or read very few books. So once they start working with me, they start becoming prolific readers themselves. One of my clients has even written a book. And uh, I, I could make the joke that I wrote the forward to it, and that's really the best part of the book. Everything else is uh, bonus. I won't say that, even though I just did. <laughs> but what I've learned is about a year to late, two years later, they're still reading all of this nonfiction. And I would love for them to write or read some works of fiction. And I have a theory of why people don't read more fiction. So instead of asking the question, why read fiction, which you've already have addressed, in your opinion, why do you think some business leaders, CEOs, let's even say chairmen of the board, chair people of the board, 
why maybe are they afraid to include fiction in their reading? It's a great question. And I wonder if uh, I'm curious about your theory, why? Because I have one too. And I'm, I'm curious if we match up on our theories. Um, so I think that we as a culture have decided that reading fiction is fluffy. It's a, it's a waste of time. It's something that you do when you're not really working. Um, it's entertainment. And I think that that then feels like if you're sitting, like, I mean, we know that, you know, Warren Buffett reads during the day. And I think it's an easier case to make of, oh, I'm reading business books and learning as opposed to saying, I sat at my desk all morning and read a novel. That feels like you're admitting that you didn't work, that you're not actually doing anything. And I think that that is hard for people to get their heads around that reading fiction is actually doing something. It's actually doing something important. It's helping develop very particular kinds of thinking skills. But I think we have this kind of cultural idea about reading fiction as somehow not being as important or as heavy um, or as productive as reading nonfiction. Do our theories align? We'll be right back. Are you interested in small businesses? My name is David C. Barnett, and I've been podcasting and producing YouTube videos about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses for almost 10 years. I'm a former business broker and have owned and operated several businesses, and I've been advising business owners since the 1990s. Each week, I create a new podcast which answers one of your questions, and I've always got amazing, exciting guests. You can find me on YouTube by going to smallbusinessanddealmakingpodcast.com or just search David Barnett's Small Business in any podcasting app to find me. I look forward to seeing you around. Yes, we're in the ballpark. I may not articulate this very well. So again, this is, this is not a fact. It's just, it's a heavy opinion. Many CEOs I work with, they're in a hurry. And they're out to win, win, win. And believe it or not, it's not about money. They just have this instinct that I want to win. I want to keep getting better. There's always a bigger mountain to scale. Well, when you read nonfiction, there's usually that gap that they don't know or they don't understand. So they want to read it, understand it, and put it to use right now. Whereas, as you said, Fiction is to me, and I'll expand your comment, it's to me a marathon. The fiction we read today will probably be enduring enough to where you'll be thinking about it 20 years from now, 30 years from now. I read, and I know I'm probably talking too much, I read Uncle Tom's Cabin over 20 years ago. If it's not my favorite book, it's my second favorite book. I can tell you almost every critical point in that book. And that book has taught me about human behavior, maybe more than any book. And that stuck with me and it's helped me professionally. So my theory is that CEOs, they're busy. They want that quick answer so they can put it to use and start winning. And it's like, I don't have time to read fiction, but yet you don't have time not to read fiction yeah, I, I think you're spot on. And I, I love the way you put it, that you don't have time to not read fiction. 
But, and, and I love Uncle Tom's Cabin too. And that was a really important book for me when I read it as well. Um, and I think that if you tell someone here, read this, you know, 600 page book, it can feel daunting and overwhelming. Um, and you think, I don't have time for this. I have, I have to get, I have to keep moving forward. And I think that it, the, the reason that we should be reading fiction is precisely because it goes up against that idea, because it is about slowing down. It is about thinking slower. It's about thinking more critically. And it, re- you, you can't get away. You can't speed up reading a novel. You, you just, I mean, you can get to a certain reading speed, but you cannot skip. You, you have to actually go through that process to fully digest and engage with a novel. And I think that is exactly the kind of thinking that we want to foster, but it feels like we don't have time to do that. And that's precisely why we have to do it because we feel like we don't have time to do it. One of the pillars we hit in Civil Bookshelf is we read for three reasons. Uh, we read to be educated, we read to be inspired, and we read to be entertained. But reading to be educated or for instruction, again, I cannot agree with you enough. You got a standing ovation when you talked about reading only for knowledge. So I'm going to skip that because we, we've hit that. But you brought up something else. I'd never heard this before. Cognitive ability and cognitive agility. Great. I, again, thank you for including that. But what does that mean? And, you know, honestly, it was new to me because, again, I'm not a neuroscientist, but when I sat down and actually looked through the peer-reviewed research about what um, scientists have looked at in terms of how the brain responds to reading fiction, one of the articles that I found that I found incredibly fascinating was this idea of cognitive openness. Um, and when we are cognitively open, we are much more willing to um, sit with ideas for longer. We are willing to look at different um, aspects or perspectives on ideas. Um, we're much more likely to search for complicated, nuanced answers. Whereas if we are cognitively closed, we feel very uncomfortable if we don't have an immediate answer. We want to get to that answer right away and we want to stick with it. The problem with that is that's not how good decisions are made. And I think anyone in the business world knows that if you're doing that, you're making mistakes. You're not thinking long-term about those kind of nuanced details that come with a um, more thoughtful, cognitively open response. And so I was really interested when I found that scientists had discovered that people who read fiction are much more open cognitively. They're willing to delay their um, decision on something as they take in new ideas, as they take in new information. They're much more willing to consider all of those aspects as opposed to someone who has a strong need for cognitive closure. And it turns out, based on some of these studies, if you read more fiction, you will slowly lose that um, uncomfortableness that comes with not having quick answers. You start to be more open to ideas. Now, does that carry on? At, you know, Is it just something that happens while you're reading the book or is it something that you can carry with you? Um, the study seems to suggest that it carries with you. 
that as you're reading, you're developing those skills and then you're applying them outside of the actual text, which I think is something important to consider that we can actually make ourselves better thinkers by forcing our brains to delay decision-making, to actually think more critically about a, a set of points and be willing to change our minds as we get more information. And then I think just being able to sit with discomfort of being able to spend time thinking through ideas that are difficult, um, that aren't necessarily ideas that give us comfort. I mean, if you think about Uncle Tom's Cabin, that is a difficult book to read. I mean, it is full of some of the worst aspects of human nature. It's hard. And to be able to sustain and live in that world as you take in information is an important cognitive skill. And I think it may be one of the most, if not the most important thing that reading can do for us is to open up our cognitive patience. I had one of my kids over in his family over the weekend. He is a corporate controller. And we talked about you. And one of the questions I asked him is, is why should we read more fiction? And the the word came up that I thought he would share. He used the word uh, empathy. And we talked about that we talked about what's happening in the brain. I don't get it. I, again, I, I know you're not going to be able to give the scientific reason, but what, what's going on? At least I'm pointing to my little pea-sized brain up here, but what in the world is happening? I, I don't get it, but the empathy thing, it works. It's it's yes. What's happening upstairs with that empathy uh, muscle? as we read fiction? It's a, it's an excellent question. And it's actually one of the things that I went searching for an answer to that because I wanted to know what is it about reading fiction that makes us more willing to understand another person's viewpoint. And I, so I think there is some research that suggests that the answer is when you are reading fiction, your brain is actually simulating the same emotional experiences that the characters are. So you actually are, your, your brain is in the brain of someone else. And we know that because brain scans show that if you're reading something that says sad, your brain is doing whatever it does, but you know, whatever um, scientists can see that shows that you too are experiencing sadness or happiness or whatever that emotion is. So what that tells us is fiction helps us actually experience a wider range of emotions. And we're actually experiencing them alongside of characters who are often very unlike us. So can you walk a mile in someone's shoes? Actually, yeah. If you are doing it through a novel, you are actually experiencing the world through a different set of eyes. And that's what helps us build empathy outside of the book. Being able to step into another person's emotions and perspective allows us to see the world in ways that we wouldn't see unless we were in this sustained environment where we are concentrating deeply on what's happening within this narrative. Um, your brain is doing some really important work that happens because you're reading and because you're understanding what this character is, is going through. And what that means is 
um, the books that are, um, that ask us to experience emotions and perspectives that are most unlike our own are the ones that challenge us the most and do the most work in terms of brain building. There's, uh, as I was prepping for this, I was doing some other searching, uh, thanks to, to Google and a term came up and I hope I'm not putting you on the spot, but the concept of design fiction and I had never heard of that, but as I was reading it, it's like, this seems like it's been around for a while. Is that a new concept or as you were doing some of your research, had design fiction come up on your radar? You know, I, I saw that when you, when you sent me some of your notes and actually it was new to me as well. Um, but when I started reading about it, I think the concept has actually been around for quite a while, but being able to name it and talk about it in a, in a structured way, I think is fairly new. Again, I'm not an expert, um, so I'm sure there's somebody out there who, who does know more about it. But the idea of using narrative to create um, a story that will help us envision something in the future, I think is really important. I mean, I, my background um, is in, in rhetoric and professional communication. And anyone who does professional communication or tech writing or marketing knows about personas, which is very similar, where you are creating stories about your users and your use cases. I think that those are very similar things where you're building up a narrative in order to understand what people might do. Um, and be able to talk about how that might work. And I think in the case of design fiction, if I'm understanding it correctly, it's an, it's an, a really powerful way of thinking about futurism. What, what are the possibilities that we can't imagine until we put it in a narrative? Another quick question. What about narrative nonfiction? If you were to scan the hundred plus books I read every year, you'd see narrative nonfiction, narrative nonfiction. I think it's also called creative nonfiction uh, memoirs, which is part of that bucket. Uh, I'm smiling as I ask you this question. Uh, do, do those books count? <laughs> you know, I had the same question because as I was reading all this research, I was like, but what about my beloved nonfiction? Cause I'm also a big nonfiction reader in addition to fiction. Um, and unfortunately Many of the studies seem to suggest that this, this research or these outcomes are specific to fiction. But I did happily find one study that suggested that narrative nonfiction does have similar outcomes as long as the book has a sustained narrative. That seems to be the, sort of the magic piece, the sustained narrative that takes you from beginning, middle to end. There is something important about that structure and characters uh, whether they're real or not, working within that structure. Um, I suspect, and, and this is just me, you know, um, pontificating, I guess. Um, but I suspect that really well written nonfiction, it, to me, it just seems like it has to do some of the same things as fiction because I can feel my brain doing some of the same things. And one of the things that I often tell my students, um, when I when I talk to them about fiction, and, and so many of them say, I just can't get into fiction, but I really love nonfiction. Well, you know, one of the things that we know nonfiction definitely does is increase your focus because it's still the opposite of that screen reading that I was talking about earlier. So if I have a student who wants to read nonfiction, 
I say go for it because at the very least, what they're doing is learning how to strengthen that focus muscle in the brain that allows them to actually sit down, turn off the devices, um, keep from being interrupted and have a sustained um, thinking experience, which I think is probably part of what Warren Buffett and Bill Gates know. It's not just about what happens within the book itself. It's actually building your ability to stay focused on one thing, which let's be honest, most of us don't have. I mean, you probably have heard my computer and I, I should have turned off my alerts, but my computer's been going nuts during this whole thing with all these alerts because my Slack is going, my Outlook is up. How do we ever think a thought with all of those interruptions coming? So if nonfiction allows you to do that, go for it. <laughs> You teach in the communications department at your university, and let's assume you've been asked to participate to be one of the professors, instructors in an executive MBA program. And by the way, please forgive me if you've been asked to do this before, but if you're included, what track or modules or objectives would you want to have? And let's say you get maybe maybe six or seven courses or classes during that executive MBA program. What would you want to throw in there? What would you include? I, I've been dying to ask this question. Yeah, I, I love to think about this. Um, so I, I do teach in a professional graduate program. It's a Master of Strategic Communication our students are oftentimes coming to us from the MBA program um, because they're interested in the communication management leadership side of things. And so um, starting after I wrote this article, I decided to test it out to see what, what happened. Um, and so I sat down and thought about a couple of short stories that I could have students read. And they responded exactly as they, as I thought they would. They asked, why are we, why are we doing this? Like, let's, let's get on. <laughs> like, like, let's get to the content. I'm paying a lot of money for this. Um, and so I, you know, I had a chat with them, talked about, okay, these are the kinds of things that reading fiction can help you do. Let's try it. Um, so we read a, a couple of short stories. I just, I pulled, um, some short stories from the New Yorker and gave them a choice as to which stories they wanted to read. And then we discussed them. Um, this was an asynchronous online class, but we discussed them on a, a discussion board. Um, and what I discovered is I couldn't have predicted the kinds of ideas that came out of that conversation. It didn't actually matter what the story was about. It was what prompted them to think about um, that analogical thinking that you mentioned earlier. So as soon as they were primed to think in analogies, they could take the story and say, well, hey, this is like this experience that you might have in an organization. And let's talk about that. So never in a million years would I have just come up with the list of topics that we ended up discussing as a result of those stories. And I think that speaks to the power of how narrative can actually build these kinds of discussions. I then, after this assignment, um, I co-wrote another article about this very topic um, that was in Harvard Business Review's education site. Um, my co-writer, um, Russell Clayton, is actually a, a, an MBA professor out of school in Florida. And um, I came in um, remotely and, and taught a short story to his executive MBA students. And we read um, 
Bartleby the Scrivener that by is, That is great. That is excellent. <laughs> and I thought, okay, this could go like this could be a total disaster because I've just given a hundred executive MBA students a Melville story. And the conversation did start with students complaining about the language, that what they called the old timey language, which is true. But then as the conversation moved forward, we ended up having this fantastic conversation about really about human resources. What do you do when you have an employee who simply says, I prefer not? Um, how do you handle that? We had discussions about was Bartleby uh, mentally ill? Uh, did we need to intervene? What is the responsibility? Uh, we talked a lot about the boredom that these employees within this law office who are all Scriveners, I mean, all they're doing is copying all day long. We talked about the ways in which mind-numbingly boring tasks can have um, in- important and negative consequences on employees and how do we think about ways to help our employees feel like they are part of the mission and actually give them real mission critical work that feels important to them and is not separated from the outcome. I mean, the the range of the conversation was so large, so widespread and, and required so many different perspectives that we ended up having this really robust conversation that again, we never would have had if we hadn't have read Bartleby the Scrivener. And I think that that just shows you that you can kind of pick anything, any um, text that is, um, I would say, um, I don't want to use the word good enough because I, I don't want to suggest that it has to be hard or that there's some sort of, um, you know, level that it has to reach. But I think it has to be robust enough and nuanced enough to allow students to bring in these um, analogies that help them think about how they would deal with these particular situations. So the question of like, well, what text would I bring in? You know, honestly, I'd probably just look for anything that I think would bring that conversation. And I like to bring in things that are fresh to me because then I'm having the same light bulb moments that they are. Do I have permission to maybe suggest a title? And I by, would love it. And by the way, if you ever do this, I will beg you, hit record, and I will pay you to hear the conversation. It's an old book. It's Tolstoy. The title may not be what we may say politically correct today, but how much land does a man need? could say how much land does a person need. It's a short book. You can read it. Oh, it's, 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 it's nothing like his other books. I mean, you can read this book in probably less than one hour. It is a great book. It is a thought provoker. When I think of these executives you're talking to who are just in growth mode, I think the question is why do you want to keep growing? What, what's the driver And I think you go to that book and it may cause people to think through, okay, I need to think really what's my why for growing. So not saying anything's wrong with growing, but Tolstoy has a way of getting us to think in a way that maybe we haven't thought about before. That's just, just an an idea. I don't know that I I have not read it. So I, I, I'm super excited. I always love getting a new 
sort of suggestion for a text. I know um, R- Russell Clayton, my co-writer, he uh, last semester had his students reading a short story by Ursula Le Guin, the science fiction writer. Um, and he told me that science fiction ended up being a great vehicle for discussions because it's far enough removed from, you know, quotation marks, the real world that it opened up this opportunity for students to, to think about what the applications are outside of that text. And, um, Russell, bless him, has, um, had his students write up um, some of their ideas and thinking. And Russell and I are currently working on an article that we hope to get done soon where we actually look at the outcomes. So do we see evidence of students showing more empathy, more analogical thinking, more cognitive openness? We're going to go through their comments and actually look to see what kinds of um, cognitive skills they are showing through this written discussion. Can you think of a book that you've read recently again, we're talking fiction that had such an impact on you. It maybe led you to start thinking differently or maybe some change behaviors. Is there a title off the top of your head where this was transformative in in this reading experience? Um, Yes. I mean, there's so, I know you feel the same way. There's just so many books out there that, that have such a huge impact, but um, well, I'll tell you about one that I recently reread um, that had a huge impact on me the first time, and then I think maybe even more so the second time. Um, I just recently read, reread Stoner by John Williams. Do you know this one? No, I do not, but I've written it down. Um, so Stoner is is a book, um, I think it came out in the, oh, maybe the 1950s. Um, I may have the date wrong on that. Um, but, but Stoner, the, the main character is a, well, actually, here's a connection to you. The main character is actually from a small town outside of Columbia, Missouri. And he's a farmer's son. Um, and it's set in the, um, early 1900s. And he believes that he is going to take over his, his father's small Missouri farm. Um, but the University of Missouri opens up a program that allows farmers to come to university to, to learn more about farming. Stoner goes to the university in Columbia, the city, and he discovers a love for the humanities, for, for English, um, for reading, um, for classics, uh, for classic literature. And he has to sort of break it to his, his parents who are farmers, who are not educated, that he doesn't want to learn about farming. He doesn't want to work with the earth. He wants to live a life of the mind. Um, and it's something that his parents can't understand. And it really drives a rift between Stoner and his family because he essentially moves classes. He, he moves from the, the working class, the working with his hands into a class of intellectuals where he never quite fits, but he can't sort of quit his addiction, I guess, if you want to put it that way, to learning about literature. And it, I'm a first generation college student. And it really spoke to me the way that Stoner enters a new kind of lifestyle that he couldn't even have imagined before because he didn't know it existed. Um, and, and then we also get Stoner's life, which in many ways is very sad, but his best moments are when he is immersed in literature. And that's sort of how I feel. The best moments of my life 
have been moments where literature has spoken to me and it does something transformative. And I think John Williams, the author, does a fantastic job of showing this um, transformation with Stoner. Before we talk about your favorite books, I don't want to be insensitive. You are also an author yourself. Feel free to share uh, some of the titles. I actually have one. I've not, I bought it, uh, but I haven't read it yet. But you've you've written several uh, books. I have. So um, way back um, in back in 2011, I was sort of interested. I was teaching young adult literature, and so I wanted to challenge myself to see if I could write a young adult novel. So I did. Um, it's called The Predicteds. Um, it's sort of a young adult version of Minority Report. Uh, the question is, um, what happens if we know which teens are going to become criminals and which are not? Um, and it was hard. <laughs> Turns out it was really hard to write fiction, um, which really gave me a new appreciation for fiction. Um, after that, I wrote a couple of nonfiction books for young readers. Um, one of them is a, a history of liars. I've always been really interested in history. Um, and in this book, I sort of look at key cases in, in history of people who have lied or pulled hoaxes. Um, and I also wrote a book on the triangle shirtwaist fire, which I know a lot of um, kids are super interested in in the labor movement. Is that the one you That's have? That's one I, yes. Um, so a lot of books have been written about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, um, but I didn't find one that was specifically written for young readers in mind. And when I say young readers, I, I'm talking about teens. Um, and the book really ended up being more about um, labor movements and the importance of organizing. Um, and I think that as I was writing that book, it made me think about how important it is to understand our past and of course, one of the ways that we do that is through nonfiction, but it's also through fiction. So much of what I know about history, I know from fiction. And that's sort of another thing that we we haven't touched on. But one of the things that the research shows that reading does is it helps us build um, stores of knowledge or reference points to um, things in history and when we have um, a bigger um, reservoir of knowledge, we are better at synthesizing information because we just have a we just have a bigger sort of block of knowledge. Um, and Marianne Wolf, she's a writer who wrote a nonfiction book called Reader Come Home. Um, and it's a book that I thought was really fascinating because she looks at all of the research that has been done on reading. She refers to um when we have a lack of knowledge base as what she calls, and I love this term, intellectual rudderlessness. So we don't have the rudder that grounds everything. And I think that the way that you get that is through a wide range of reading. And for me, that has been both fiction and nonfiction, both as a reader and a writer. I feel like I understand what she means by intellectual rudderlessness because I have been there. And the more you read, the more your world opens up and the more you understand how pieces fit together. And that's something that I am really interested in as a writer. How do we synthesize all this information to understand something about ourselves and about the time we live in? Last question. Again, this has been fantastic. Some of your favorite books. Now, you've mentioned a few, but what are some of your favorites? And it can be recent. It can be a long time ago. It can be books that you recommend a lot. But I have a feeling your list is long. 
My list is very long and I did, I anticipated this question. So I've actually been thinking about it for the last couple of weeks and you can't see it, but I've actually got some post-it notes on my desk. And every time I think of one that, oh yes, that was a very important book to me. Um, and I'd love to share, and I hope that you'll be willing Please. to share yours as well. Um, so one of my all-time favorite books is Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. Um, it's sort of a gothic um, mystery, but I think that what the author does in this book is really clever. Um, Rebecca, the main character, is actually not alive. Rebecca is actually dead, and that does not spoil the book. Um, the narrator um, is the second wife of Rebecca's husband, and the narrator never gets a name. She is never named because she's living in Rebecca's shadow. And the book is all about how this narrator takes um, the place in this um, very esteemed English manner with um, her new husband. And she's learning about Rebecca, the first wife, and what happened to that wife. And I think it's a, it's a very cleverly done book. And it's one that I, I think is really um, carefully and cleverly plotted. If I go back to some of the books that were really important to me as a younger reader, um, and I know this one's controversial, but Catcher in the Rye was a really important book to me. That is outstanding. By the way, that's, on, think, that's on Bill Gates's list, isn't it? I, I, it is. It is. And so I know a lot of, especially younger readers now, um, hate that book. And I know that because my students tell me all the time because they think Holden is just a liney narrator. Um, so I challenged my students a couple of semesters ago to read it with, with new and open eyes and an open mind. And after we read it, we sort of all came away thinking, you know, this is really a book about grief. It's, it's not a book about, um, being a rich, whiny, um, white man. <laughs> it's a book about grief. And when you look at, the grief that Holden is experiencing as an adolescent, I think it becomes a much richer experience. Um, I think maybe um, pop culture has kind of turned Catcher in the Rye into a book that's about being um, sort of the, the ultimate um, dissatisfied adolescent. But I think it's deeper than that. And I think when you look at it that way, it, there's some really important lessons there. Does that mean I have to share any of mine? <laughs> can, can we slide past through that? I will. Well, yeah, no, I'd love, I'd love to hear. Well, I am curious. I just read this summer, I, I just read East of Eden, and I could not put it down. That was, I, I had read Grapes of Wrath, and I, it was to me, it was the most depressing book I'd ever read. I thought, I'm done with Steinbeck. But for whatever reason, I thought, oh, I'm going to try East of Eden. And I just found myself getting lost in that book. Uh, now it ends somewhat abruptly, but he had to wrap it up at some point. But it does have a good uh, bookends, beginning and and end. I will say that crime and punishment—you learn a lot about human nature. The thing that I hated about that book is I found myself pulling for. I don't know if he's the antagonist or the protagonist, but the guy who committed the evil deed, I was stressing for him. And, and the author just, he nailed it. He, he, he did something that I think is very hard to do. Uh, and that's to get you to start feeling for this other person who created this heinous act. 
Uh, now, thankfully, there there's a redemptive part of the story, but phenomenal book. I will add one recent book. Uh, Stephen King, you may think horror novels, not necessarily. So a few years ago, he wrote 11-22-63. And it is one of the best pieces of writing and the ending. Now, there's I can't say it. But the ending is extremely philosophical. And, and of course, you have this character who's trying to keep the assassination of JFK from happening. Well, we see what happens when he prevents that. And again, very philosophical. And this book is, it's great. And it, it goes back to a lot of things we've been talking about and, and it goes back to that cognitive ability and agility concept that you brought up. So, again, fiction, I need to read more, but a lot of the books I hit, they are spot on and they become transformative somehow, some way in the future. So, again, I could talk about this more and I hope we get to talk about this in the future again. For sure. Yeah. And I, 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 I want to second everything you said about, about the books you mentioned. I think they're all amazing. Crime and Punishment is, is one of my favorites. And it is one that forces you to think, who am I rooting for here? And why am I on the wrong side? And, and what does that mean? I mean, earlier you had asked, and I don't know that I really answered it, but you had asked, you know, if I had free reign to, to do an executive leadership course that had literature, what would I choose? Um, I think at this point, I, I think that a, a lot of folks are very interested in, in DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's, it's been a long time coming. And I think that that's a really important aspect of, of thinking about the world, um, especially the workplace. And I think that one of the ways that literature can really be helpful and important is reading texts that are by people who haven't had a voice um, at least a voice that we've heard. So reading books by people of color, um, reading books by people who have had vastly different experiences than the majority of people in a workplace who, I mean, are oftentimes white people and oftentimes white men. I think it's important to be thinking about perspectives that come from people that you maybe haven't thought about before. Like I read um, the book Homegoing by Yaa Gyasi. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing her name right. The book is called Homegoing. Um, it came out a few years ago. And in the book, um, the author traces um, the characters from um, the trans transatlantic slave trade all the way to the present. And I think it provides a really interesting perspective on the ways that um, generational trauma can actually um, move through these generations and we can actually see these waves playing out in families. Um, and I think that that's a really important way to think about the world from a different perspective. Um, and I don't think that that's, I know some people are resistant. They like, well, I don't, I don't push an agenda on me and I don't see it as an agenda. It is really just thinking about um, the world from the perspective of somebody that is not you. I'll say it one more time, Dr. Seifert, out of respect, but Christy, this is phenomenal. You are an incredible communicator. I Again, I, I would love to just audit a class of yours. I have a feeling your students adore you, 
and I can see why. So I, again, thank you for being on the show. Oh, I thank you so much. Those are very nice things to say. I I'm super excited about what you're doing with your podcast and, uh, I plan to listen to it. I'm excited to learn more. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Definitely a conversation that I wish could have kept going, Dr. Christine Seifert. I have a feeling this will not be the last time we'll be speaking uh, Christy, by the way, was also mentioned in an Inc. article. It's called A Pair of Business School Professors Made Their Students Read Fiction. And we will link to that in the show notes at cfobookshelf.com. And she did mention this article during the interview, but I'll repeat it. The article is called What Reading Fiction Can Teach Graduate Students About Empathy and Emotion. She co-wrote that with Russell Clayton. That's on another Harvard uh, Business Publication. And when I see a title like that, that includes empathy and emotion, I can't help thinking of Atticus Finch. You remember in the movie, it's a very poignant moment. I think they're they're sitting on a, a porch swing and he's talking to Scout and it goes something like this. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in a very, very famous quote from uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. You better be careful because next time I run into you in person or online, I'm going to be asking you, what fiction have you been reading lately? We need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf. (laughs) 